put out your porch light, draw your curtains tight, and get ready for another night of Kentucky Deceased. for tuning into today's episode of Kentucky Deceased. It's going to be a very special episode. I'm sitting here with Julia Gabbert, who is a tour guide, all-around mini-hat wearer, I would say. Mini-hat, you wear mini-hats? Not literally. (laughs) (laughs) Tour guide and housekeeper. Tour guide and housekeeper at Liberty Hall in the Orlando Brown House. Uh, Hi, Julia. Thank you for joining. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Happy to speak with you. Anytime. Can I tell you an embarrassing story to get started Please really quickly? Do. So uh, I'm new to Frankfurt. I just moved here in August. And when I came to the Orlando Brown House to meet with Sarah Elliott, I uh, accidentally, unknowingly called it the Orlando Bloom House. And I keep <laughs> wanting to call it the Orlando <laughs> Bloom House, <laughs> even though he is not. I think it's because we have the... Um, Johnny Depp connection at the museum. Right, it's yes. Like... And also, you know, there's the alliteration, the bees. Yeah, we've um, got the bees in the Orlando. But you there's know, there's like... not too many Orlandos, so. <laughs> there's really not. Yeah. I get that. So it's just like, yeah. So every time, you know, we're, we're sitting here <laughs> in the Orlando Brown House, but in my head, I keep saying it's Orlando It's still the Bloom Orlando House. Bloom House. <laughs> and then it just makes me think of Blooming Onions, and then I just want to go to Apex <laughs> Steakhouse. <laughs> You have ADHD just like me, don't I was, you? Yeah, I was going to say, I think we can Squirrel. all maybe diagnose me. If, if, but don't, please. You know, there are professionals who do that. Getting very personal at the start of this episode. Uh, anyway, so for those of you who are maybe familiar or not familiar with Frankfurt, I would hazard a guess to say that the most famous spirit in town is here. And Julia is going to talk to us a little bit about that. So first, before we get into that, though, I would like to maybe just hear a little bit more about you, about your time here at Liberty Hall. And importantly, what is Liberty Hall? What is the Orlando Brown House? Why do we have it? What does it mean? Okay. So I um, have been a tour guide as well as a housekeeper um, at Liberty Hall um, and the Orlando Brown House. The two homes um, sit on four acres of this historic site here. Um, the Liberty Hall, wh- where we give the tours and every the main tours, um, was built by one of Kentucky's first two senators. Um, he helped Kentucky get founded as a state. His name was John Brown, not one of the many John Browns you may have heard of. <laughs> no one's heard of him. It's really sad. Come take a tour so you can learn about him. Um, <laughs> But he um, began construction on the house in about 1796. He bought the four acres that still make up the site today. Um, And then the house took several years to build. The walls are massively thick. All the brick was built, you know, made on the site here. Um, And he uh, moved in with his bride, Margareta Mason, in about 1801. The house Mm -hmm. was finally finished. Um, and then he built Orlando Brown House here about um, 1835 for his younger son. Well, that's very thoughtful. Yes, yeah. he wanted his children. He had two surviving children that grew up to adulthood. Uh, he wanted them to share equally in his um, in the inheritance. And mm-hmm. so um, that's what's here at the site today. The site is owned by um, an organization called National Society of Colonial Dames. Uh, they're a group of ladies that... Um, originally formed in the late 1800s, were interested in historic preservation, um, and we had uh, three and four generations of the family that lived at the site, three generations at Liberty Hall, four generations here at the Orlando Brown House, um, and the last family member that lived at Liberty Hall until about 1935 um, was uh, a member of the Dames, Mm -hmm. and she had the foresight to set everything up to leave the house as a museum. She is the one who had... um, uh, one of the more famous, you know, ghostly experiences or the first written one that everyone, you know, knew about. Um, and thanks to her, you know, she left the house as a museum and that's kind of why it's all here today. I mean, I have to say for those of you who have not been here, you're really missing out because the degree of care 
that has been put into the maintenance and preservation of the room that we're sitting in, which is the... We're in the double parlor. There's the men's parlor and the ladies' parlor. There are these beautiful, giant folding doors in between the the two rooms um, with very ornate Greek Revival-style fireplaces here. Um, yeah, these homes are beautiful. It's really, it's really a gem uh, that we have here. We do tours um, Monday through Saturday. Uh, this year, we're going to run until the middle of October doing mm-hmm. the tours. Um, We are short-staffed right now. We just lost a couple of long-term staff members, which we were very sorry, who we were very sorry to see go. Um, And so we're not doing any ghost tours this year, Um, but the tours are at 11.30 and 1.30. You can go to libertyhall.org, sign up on our online portal, and and come for a tour. Uh, I'm here Mondays and Tuesdays, but we have a couple of other great tour guides who who give tours as well. and so, yeah. when do you all start back up after the new year? Do you we have a date? start mid-March. Okay. Just in case people are listening after the middle of October, I want to make sure that they know where to go and how to get here. Do you all do events on these properties too? We do. Um, you know, pre-COVID times, we would have several events a year, including fundraisers, but also just fun events for the community. We do an event called Barks and Brews in July, where people can bring their dogs and and just commune. Our gardens um, are open dawn to dusk year-round for people to come and enjoy. Um, we're situated right by the river, so the river's on the back end of the property, and it's just gorgeous. Oh, I'm I'm excited to get to explore the property a little bit more because I've really only ever been in the not Orlando Bloom House. So the Orlando Bloom. I'm not being very respectful to the space. I apologize. House, the Orlando Brown House. Uh, okay. So anyway, let's let's chat about this. Okay, when I moved here, everybody told me about the Gray Lady of Liberty Hall, and I'm so excited to get to hear a little bit more about her. Do you mind first to share, you know, how did you first hear about her? Do you have any recollections about hearing the story, you know, growing up or as an adult? Like, It's in town. I think it's one of those um, um, urban legend kind of things where a lot of people um, know about about the gray lady, have heard stories. And because in the past we would do, you know, Halloween open houses and have people come through the house and we would do, um, in years past, they would put on a little play, a little reenactment of the gray lady and have her, um, that's the, the, what the ghost is known as by the public is the gray lady because she had been seen in gray and they would have someone, you know, come down the stairs in this gray, you know, flowy thing, and sometimes they would have her stationed in the upstairs window over there at Liberty Hall, the beautiful Palladian window that's on the upper floor. Um, so people would, well, I still get a lot of visitors who say, oh, I'll, you know, whenever I walk past, I'll look up in the window and see if I can see the gray lady, you know, and they'll have some little story about how some relative of theirs saw her in the window or something to that oh effect. Oh my gosh, <laughs> so, I love that. So yeah, people have kind of always known about her. I, um, as a child, I've always been a fan of ghost stories. So I had um, checked out every book out of the Paul Sawyer library <laughs> that I could get my hands on about ghost stories. So I had read about the gray lady and, um, and we came on a school field trip when I was, I think, in like third grade. Um, and I was super excited. I was like, ooh, I'm going to see the ghost. And it was this rainy day. And a lot of the kids, I think, were scared. You know, ooh, haunted house. Oh, no. And the teachers were like, oh, the ghosts are out in the garden. We're not going to go out there. It's raining today. It's all fine. So um, I have a distinct memory of standing in the haunted bedroom, peering out the window into the <laughs> gardens, desperately hoping to see the gray lady but alas, here I am 40-some years later. She has not shown herself to me personally, but there are many stories. Ooh. So maybe should we, do you feel comfortable to start sharing some of your favorites or how, how do you want to talk about her? What is the appropriate way to discuss the gray lady? Well, we should probably talk about who she was in life. So I'll have to give you a little context on the Brown family. Um, So John and his wife, Margareta, as I said, moved in about 1801. Um, They had five children total, um, but three of those children died um, pretty young. Two of them were boys who died in infancy. Um, The third one was a little girl who died at the age of seven. And so John's wife, Margareta, um, 
was really uh, grief stricken after the loss of that child. And um, her whole family was concerned that she was going to grieve herself to death. She became really emaciated. Um, she would wander around in the gardens looking for signs of her angel child, um, very devastated. So about, about four years after the little girl died, um, the little girl passed away in 1814. About 1817, Margareta Brown is still, um, still really deep in grief. She had withdrawn from, from everyone. So her beloved aunt Margareta, who was named Margareta Varick, um, came from New York to visit to try to bring some comfort to Margareta and to help out some, you know, for, with the family. Um, Margareta Brown was from New York. This aunt of hers, uh, she had been very, very close to, um, helped to raise her. She was named after her, so they were very close. So, um, but her aunt is about 72, I believe, at that time. And she makes this grueling trek from New York in 1817, if you can imagine, you know, the rigors of travel um, at that time, necessitating being on boats, carriages. Um, she came... Margareta Varick came down in um, August of, so really hot time of the year. So she was, you know, elderly and traveling and possibly the worst time of the year. So she gets to Liberty Hall um, to try and bring some comfort to the family. But instead, she um, is not feeling very well when she arrives. And so they send her up to the bedroom to rest um, and she goes up there and almost immediately um, is very, very ill. Um, the descriptions are that she was violently ill. Um, it was described as um, uh, some type of indigestion or something. They don't really know. But she passed away in the space of about 48 hours. Oh, my gosh. So, Seriously. So she came here to comfort and then, oh. And instead of bringing comfort, brought oh. more trouble and grief to the family. So she had been on her way, apparently, to uh, Illinois to see her own children um, and, you know, never made it that far. So they buried her on family property, which was um, the Browns. Apparently, John had some different properties around town. Um, and apparently it was uh, on the hillside, kind of near where Fort Hill Park is now. There was a, an, an old cemetery there. Um, eventually, all of the Browns were... Um, moved to the Frankfurt Cemetery, which John Brown also helped to, um, to found and, and organize. Um, and there's a little footnote in one of the family letters that states that Margareta Varick was moved to the Frankfurt Cemetery along with the rest of the family. Um, however, there's not a record of her at the cemetery, and her name isn't on any of the family tombstones. Hmm. So that might be another um, aspect to why she's... She, might be floating around here, the uncertainty of where she um, might, her remains might be. Um, so after she passed away, um, the first sighting of her was in about 1820 or so. Um, one of uh, Margareta and John's grandsons had gotten married, and he had brought his um, bride, Mary Gunn Brown, to stay at Liberty Hall and visit with the family. And they had um, set her up in that bedroom where mm -hmm. old Aunt Varick had passed away, unbeknownst to Mary Gunn, apparently. And at some point, she awakened um, in the night and saw this figure floating around in the room and screamed and ran out and would never set foot back in that room again. So she was the first one to have seen the spirit, and then her... Um, one of her sister-in-laws, you know, once the stories come out, the sister-in-law is like, I saw it too. <laughs> so at least, you know, Mary Gunn knew that she wasn't crazy or making things up, you know. Yeah. But in many cases, the family seems to have just sort of passed that off. Like, oh, you know, it was maybe your imagination, a dream or whatever. You know, <laughs> they didn't seem very invested in, in the ghost <laughs> story. But that was, that was the first sighting that got written about in family letters. Really? And so how did that, this is a, uh, a question that's coming directly from a folklorist. So please uh, excuse this and audience, please excuse it too. Was it passed along orally or through the letters is how we know about these events. Like how did that kind of re-enter the record? That was mentioned in um, some of the family letters, just sort of in passing, mm -hmm. like an unimportant thing, um, <laughs> you know. Yeah, just like, you know, 
I'm sure it was written off as like marital stress or, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, no one really thought too much of it. Although, you know, everyone knew that, that old aunt Varick had passed away in that room. Um, but of course, you know, people died in their homes in those days. It really, people are so hung up today on, oh, what if somebody died in my house or what if somebody died here? Mm-hmm. The world is old. People have died <laughs> everywhere. I, I think, you know. Yeah. That's a healthy dose of reality, honestly. I exactly. Mean, yeah. <laughs> so then the next, um, well, like well written about and sort of documented by the family sighting didn't happen until many years later in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. So that was when um, that last family member who lived in the house um, came to visit as a, she was about 20. Um, She apparently didn't really know anything of any of the ghost stories or anything. She she was uh, John Brown's great-granddaughter, a descendant of um, John's son, uh, Mason Brown. And she was visiting for the summer from boarding school up in the Northeast, and they had set her up in that in that bedroom where she was staying. And she um, awoke in the night, saw this gray figure at the end of the bed, and um, was startled and, and yelled out, you know, sort of out of fear. And the family comes running with fireplace pokers and shotgun, thinking that there's an intruder. And, of course, the figure's gone. And they're like, oh, you had a dream, you know. So it happened for her three nights in a row. So if you can imagine something like that happening, that's going to make an impression on you. So by the mm-hmm. third night, you know, she was not startled. She tried to um, gain a sense of what this figure was. She said it was tall. It was veiled in gray. Um, and she realized that it was sort of a comforting presence. She didn't feel any fear. And so she decides she's going to um, reach out and try to touch it and speak to it. So she reaches out her hand and it passes right through the gray veil and the figure disappears. So then she's like, okay, I'm awake. I've seen something. What was that? Mm -hmm. So that's when she really starts, you know, kind of talking to people about what's happened. She knows this is a real thing now. And um, that's when she sort of starts to hear stories about, um, she hears from a family friend, oh, old Aunt Varick is at it again. And that's when she learns, oh, other people have seen this as well. Oh, wow. So it sounds like at this point, there's an assumption, at least, that there are stories between that first one and then this other experience that have kind of occurred orally, maybe not written about in family letters. Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. So bless her heart. You know, she certainly was not, would not have been expecting that. No. Um, But as an adult, she... Um, inherited the home um, and was known to be into spiritualism. She, mm. um, uh, it's said that she participated in seances. She was known to do palm readings. So um, between the fact that spiritualism was popular, you know, at the time in the late, um, in the early 1900s uh, and her own experience, she was definitely interested in the whole phenomena but if anything else ever happened to her, she did not write about it. Um, really? So it was only that first experience in her early 20s? Yeah. Interesting. She herself referred to uh, the ghost as our beloved ghost. Hmm. Knowing that it was a family member who um, might be just sort of lingering around to check on people. Um, and of course, you know, maybe felt guilty that she <laughs> she had passed away so quickly and and didn't wasn't wasn't able to bring comfort to anyone in life so oh geez oh it wasn't until um there was uh, there's a really funny um incident that so the the dames who owned the site were of course mame was um the last family member's nickname her name was mary mason scott i should say um she went by Mame, and so Mame was was a dame, and she was friends with all of the dames, um, and they would uh, come and visit and stay and things like that. And so there were um, some little anecdotes that some of them had to tell. Uh, the funniest one, um, she didn't she didn't seem frightened by it, so I, I can describe it as funny. Um, her telling of it was was sort of amusing. Um, in about nineteen eleven or so, um, a woman named Rebecca Averill was um, visiting um, one of Mame's uh, sisters. 
Mame was out of town. Um, her mother, I think, was gone with her. Um, it was just the sister there. And so Rebecca Averill's staying for a few days. She is very well aware of the haunting, of the ghost stories. And she chats with, um, with her hostess about um, some of the ghost stories. And her hostess says, well, I've, I've you know, arranged for you to sleep in, in the haunted bedroom. But if you, know, if you won't be comfortable there, I'll be happy to put you somewhere else. And she says, oh, no, no, you know, I, I want to stay there. So she does. And she writes this um, really funny story about um, lying in bed. She'd gone to bed about midnight, um, turns off the lights, and she said she'd been asleep for a couple of hours. And um, she awoke to the swish, swish of silken garments. And she sat straight up in bed and pinched herself to make sure that she was awake. And um, there, in the, in the moonlight, gliding across the floor, was the gray lady herself, she says. And she looked at her for a moment, and then um, she said, she wrote that the um, uh, church clock or the town clock or whatever rang out, boom, boom, and startled her. And so she ducked under the covers. And when she peeked her, her head back out, the figure was gone. So she, you know, seemed to think that this was really cool. So the next yeah. morning she's telling her hostess all about this and her hostess tells her, oh yeah, you know, so you, you saw her and, you know, a couple of other family members had seen her like hovering around in the vicinity of the room or near the top of the stairs. A couple of the other family members would apparently see her with some regularity and um, would, there's one of them that would speak to her and whenever she would say anything, the figure would disappear. Um, Rebecca Averill uh, said that she uh, decided not to say anything because she had always been told that if you spoke to a ghost, you might hear something that you didn't want to hear. Oh. So it's just kind of interesting, the different beliefs that, that people have. Yeah. Um, but she wasn't scared. Her hostess said, oh, you know, I can put you in another room. And she said, oh, no, no, I want to stay there. So she did. She stayed there a couple more nights, but nothing else happened. So, you know, one thing that I'm I'm very curious about is it seems like the gray lady has, mm, and, and maybe you said this, Julia, maybe I've just totally missed it. What does she look like? What is she typically wearing? Is it like an Edwardian Victorian dress? Like is Rebecca Averill described her as wearing a gray bonnet and a gray shawl. Oh, so when she, um, when old Mrs. Varick, old Aunt Varick, arrived, she had been wearing a gray traveling cloak, um, which is something that, you know, a, a proper lady might wear for travel. They didn't have a whole lot of clothing, and you would want to protect your clothing from the filth of travel. So she had had this gray traveling cloaked cloak on when she arrived and, and was buried in that. Mm -hmm. So that's presumably what she's been sort of wearing ever since. Can people see her face or is it all like no one ever really describes it? Like no one's ever really seen her face. We have um, a ghost photo that was taken in the 1960s after there had been a small fire at Liberty Hall. Um, that's that's a whole other ghost story. So uh, before I get to that, let me yeah. tell you real quickly how she came to be called the the gray lady. Yes, that is. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, so after Rebecca Averill's um, experience, she apparently was telling everybody. Um, she had done some uh, kind of like I am now, speaking speaking to people about her um, her experience and and her time, you know, at Liberty Hall. And uh, the Louisville Courier Journal um, was doing a piece apparently on, on ghost stories. You know, the, the word was spreading word had gotten out and you know, people love ghost stories as, as we do. And so they, um, had published a, a story about it. And it was the author of that, uh, little piece who started referring to her as the gray lady kind of due to Rebecca Averill's description of her as wearing gray. Um, and so, you know, most ghosts inspectors often appear to be gray and, so, and sort of wispy. So that's how the public came to know her as the gray lady. I love that. Isn't that so kind of neat? Yeah, like I am you know? really into that. I want to find that Courier-Journal article. I now. think I might have it um, in the file. I'll see if I can dig it out. And I have the cool. ghost photo, too. I really yeah. want to see the ghost photo. I'll show photo. it okay. to you. So, okay. So 
then Grey Lady gets dubbed the Grey Lady. Right. Then what happens? So then, years, years later, the next sort of um, well-known um, stories about her uh, happened in the 1960s. Um, there was this curator at the time named Mrs. Coleman, um, and she was the tour guide. She sort of looked after things at the house. Um, it's funny, I still get tour guests who uh, remember her. Really? She was still alive, uh, I think, into the 1980s. Um, so, you know, people people knew her. She, she worked at Liberty Hall for like 20 years. Um, so during her time there, there had been that small fire. Um, thankfully, not a whole lot of damage done, but it was at the base of the big staircase over there at Liberty Hall. And um, she uh, had been sort of overseeing some repair work that had needed to be done as a result of the fire. And she was taking photos of the stairwell um, to document the repair work to submit to the insurance company. So she snaps some photos and everything, you know, seems fine and normal. And, you know, in those days you had to send it off to a, a developer, which she did. And when she got the photos back, she saw this figure at the base of the stairwell. And it looked like this um, draping garment sort of there that was see-through. Um, and towards the top where a head would be, there's this sort of whitish area. What? And um, you're going to flip out when you see this yeah, picture. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's really picture. cool. Um, and so she, you know, took the photos back to the developer and was like, you know, what happened? What, what is this? And they pulled out the negatives and, and it's on the negatives mm -hmm. as well. And of course, this was about 1965, I think. You couldn't really manipulate film as well. Um, and so the uh, developer just couldn't explain it, and it se didn't seem that there had been any tampering with, with the photo or the negatives. And so that's totally unexplained and super spooky. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, when you look at it. So that's, that's our famous ghost photo. That was the photo that I had seen when I checked out the book from the library, and I was just so determined, like, you know. Oh, I was like, I'm going to see this ghost. <laughs> so... Um, Apparently, after that fire had happened, they had um, turned the electricity off. Um, I guess there had maybe been some sort of alarm system. I don't know, but they had turned the electricity off, and they were concerned about, you know, break-ins or theft. And so they um, employed these two local firemen to guard the house. And so they're staying in the house. They stayed for about three nights, apparently, and... Um, they had lit candles throughout the house and they were sort of patrolling the house and at a certain point they decided they should maybe check the attic so they go up to the attic and they apparently said they struggled to kind of get the attic door open it was kind of stuck or something and they go up into the attic and they're looking around and they heard the attic door slam so they run back down and they go out of the attic thinking god there's got to be somebody in the house you yeah. know so they look through the whole house and there's nobody and they go back up, and that attic door is shut. They had left it open. Hmm. And so that happened several times during their stay there. The candles um, would be snuffed out, and they said they heard different moaning and groaning. and Like were... sounds of a violently ill person? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> yeah. So they were a little freaked out, but they um, claimed that they didn't necessarily believe in the ghost but that there was definitely something going on in the house and of course if you know anything about ghosts you you know that um they can be disturbed when things are changing in their environment so you know a fire workmen a couple strange guys in there maybe maybe old mrs varick was just like what is going on in here you know who are these yeah. people what's happening get out or, but, you know, extinguishing candles does sound pretty handy, not going to lie. Especially if they're left in an unsupervised Exactly. Location. I mean, there had just been a fire. Yeah. Are they trying to start another fire? <laughs> she sounds very thoughtful more than anything She's looking out. Say. She's looking out for everybody. So that was, you know, uh, that got reported to the newspapers as well. And so, you know, these men were supposedly um, very well respected and above above reproach. So everyone, you know, believed their their stories of what had happened to them in the house. And so that also sort of propelled the the ghost story into the public consciousness. Whoa. 
Now, Mrs. Coleman um, would go on to have lots of other incidents during her time there. She uh, reported that there would be things like, you know, rocking chairs, rocking on their own, you know, all those tropes of, of ghost stories, mysterious bumps and sounds and things like that. Um, and she also tells this story of um, there was a one cold, wet winter that she was working there and um, they weren't getting any visitors for tours. And she um, was over at Liberty Hall tidying up, closing the house down, something like that. And she finds these two gold bracelets in the haunted bedroom. And she thinks, well, where did these come from? There hasn't been anyone in the house. These weren't here before. Where did they come from? So she checks with the dames to see if any of them had been there and possibly left them and no one knew anything about them. And she um, took them to a jeweler, and he said that it appeared that they had been made um, in the 1800s. So she, you know, tried to find out who they belonged to, where they came from. No answer for that. They had just Whoa. mysteriously appeared in the haunted bedroom. And she apparently loved to tell that story um, to folks who would come for the tours because I still to this day get people who come on tours and remember having a tour from her and her telling that story. <laughs> I mean, I got to admit, like, when things appear that are out of our time, that... It's pretty compelling. Yes. <laughs> I don't blame her for being very uh, excited to retell that story. Yes. She <laughs> she was a great repository, apparently, of, of all sorts of uh, tales of, of Liberty Hall. And apparently visitors, you know, during that time had had little experiences, like hearing noises, mm -hmm. um, seeing a wispy figure somewhere upstairs, maybe. Just, you know, just little things here and there. Um, there is an a, apartment that had been built... Um, on the back of Liberty Hall, extending out over the um, kitchen, which had initially been a separate building. Um, and people who have lived in that apartment over the years have had experiences. There were quite a few of those. Um, I'm not, I don't think Mrs. Coleman lived there. But there were some people um, in the 80s who lived there who had experiences. There was a caretaker. In the past, they used to have someone live there who was like a caretaker or a curator or someone kind of connected with with the site itself. Now it's just rented out to um, a random person, you know, um, who doesn't have anything necessarily to do with Liberty Hall. But um, so these caretakers over the years have had some stories. Um, there was a man who lived there in the late... 90s I want to say or late 80s or 90s um and was just in the apartment reading one night and he said that the um calendar on his wall just began flipping the pages just began flipping and then ripped off and flung to the floor and he had always heard he was aware of the ghost stories he had always heard that you should speak to a ghost so he addressed her by name and said you know Mrs. Varick will you please stop that and it stopped, but several pages had been ripped off the calendar. He said that um, also he had an incident where some um, candles were flung onto the floor out of the candle holders, and he sort of concluded that for whatever reason, maybe old Mrs. Varick just didn't approve of him being there. So he was a little spooked, uh, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, that's reasonable. There was a lady that lived there for several years. Um, this was... I think still in the 1960s, um, she had happy experiences with the ghost. She uh, talked about um, leaving to go shopping or whatever, coming back, and the apartment would be all tidied up. Um, she came back with an armload of groceries one time, and the gate swung open for her on its own. Okay, that's... Honestly, other than this gentleman's experience, this ghost sounds incredibly thoughtful. Yeah, that's the one. Um, maybe she didn't like men or something, because to me, the only two times that anything that could be construed as, as frightening or unwelcoming happened to men. So who knows? Yeah. That's just my supposition. I, I wouldn't want to ascribe any, um, you know, I mean, it's motives very to her. But logical based on the narrative evidence. So she doesn't seem bound to necessarily one room. Right, which is kind of surprising, but yeah. mainly to the upper floor and the stair stairwell. There was a man, another man, again, in the 90s, who was a um, historic uh, researcher, I believe. Um, he was working there on his own one evening um, doing some work, 
And he said that there was, he was in the front parlor and in there we have John Brown's writing desk and his inkwell with some quill pens. Mm -hmm. And, um, the guy was in there and he said he caught some movement out of the corner of his eye and looked over and there was a quill pen spinning around and around in the inkwell. And he thought he saw a figure in the hallway and he went and looked and there was no one there, but he smelled, um, of terrible odor of like rotting meat or something which dissipated and he searched the whole house and there was no one else there but I think that kind of spooked him a little bit that seems very out of character for the other stories yeah huh. which again a man yeah so I just yeah I've kind of like having read some of these stories I'm like yeah that's the common thread anything spooky that's like frightening has happened to to the males. So I don't know, maybe she's just, you know, very protective. She'll look after her, you know, sisters, but but the guys the guys <laughs> just get, need to go. Get out of here. They just need to leave the house alone. These dudes are leaving are they're leaving lit candles. Although areas. there is a cute story from the 1970s. There was a guy um that some folks may have heard of. His name is Hal Sparks. He's from Kentucky. He is um an actor. Um, I think he worked uh, on some shows on the Disney Channel. He's also he also does stand up comedy. His father was um, a historic uh, reconstructionist or something. I may have that wrong. He um, or was possibly an architect and was doing some work on the house. They they were the dames um, did a lot of restoration work, of course, over the years, and would have experts come in and do different stuff. And so they were um, having this um, architect. Hal Sparks' dad come and do some things, um, and apparently Hal was a little kid. He was maybe like six years old or something, and um, his dad took him to work with him. So his dad's doing stuff in the house, and and Hal is kind of wandering around the house on his own. Um, and eventually, his dad goes to find him and hears him chatting with someone, but there wasn't anyone else in the house. And he says, oh, who are you, who are you talking to? And the boy says, oh, the old lady. There was, you know, I was just talking to this old lady here. What? And of course, there was no old lady. There was no one else there. And um, he remembered that story. And he came back to the site and um, was telling some of the staff members about that. And they were like, well, where, you know, where did this happen? Oh, that bedroom uh, at the top of the stairs to the right. That's the haunted bedroom. And so that stuck with him. He, you know, definitely remembered that and remembered talking to an old lady. Um, I don't think he described her. He just, you know, remembered her being there and being happy to have someone to talk to. So that's a pretty sweet little story. That is a really sweet little story. I love that. And I love that Hal Sparks had an experience with the gray lady. That is amazing. So, uh, you know, uh, have there been recent sightings in the last like 30 I think we're up to the 1970s yes. right so there have there have been some some recent incidents um we had a tour guide here in about 2013 or so um she had a group of people um among them was a young boy and she had brought them into the house and was doing the introduction of of the browns and all that sort of thing and the boy kept saying he wanted to go upstairs. Hmm. He didn't apparently know anything about the ghost, but just felt some draw to, to go up there. So, um, so apparently and they went upstairs pretty shortly, and um, she was getting ready to take them into that bedroom. And the boy sort of balked and was really upset and didn't want to go in there. And so she let the boy and his mother sit out in the hallway for a few minutes as she took the other guests in there and was talking with them about the room. That was where the last, where Mame stayed when she owned the house. So she was talking a little bit about Mame and, um, and then went to check on the boy and his mom and said, you know, is, is he okay? What happened? And, and his mother said, oh, he said he saw a ghost. And so she said, oh, she hadn't even told them about the ghost yet. Mm. And, um, she said, oh, well, you know, don't worry. She's, she's a friendly ghost. There's nothing to be afraid of, I promise. And the mother said, well, he, you know, he sees ghosts pretty regularly. So, you know, so it shouldn't be that big of a deal to him, but it startled him. 
And so that was pretty interesting, I thought. You know, this little boy who knew nothing of these stories apparently saw something. And he apparently sees things all the time. So as you were saying, if you're, you know, open to it sometimes, that's when things will present themselves. Um, wild. One of the most, uh, this just blows my mind. Um, This, in about 2014, we had a curator um, who was getting new curtains installed over there in the big formal parlor at the front of the house. Um, There are, I think the ceilings over there are like 12 feet tall. Um, So they had installed these real heavy duty um, curtain brackets, the kind that are sort of like um, U-shaped that you set the curtain rod down into. So there are these super heavy, um, really, of course, long curtains that... um, she had been sort of overseeing the the installation and mounting of these curtains. So they were all put up, and she leaves for the day, and she comes back the next day, and they're on the floor, lifted up out of those brackets, thrown on the floor. Whoa. And so, of course, you know, there's only a handful of us that work here, only a few of us that have keys. Um, there's an alarm system, you know, and there was no indication that anyone had been in the house. Um, so, of course, then she has, she's like, well, ugh, Okay, so she gets them to come and rehang the curtains, which, of course, you have to have a ladder to do, mm-hmm. um, and came in a couple of days later, and they were on the floor again. So she had to get them put back up again, and they've hung ever since. I wonder if maybe if maybe old Mrs. Varick did not approve yeah, of the, like curtains, the curtains, or... <laughs> that is Who wild. knows, but... So she just kept taking, but eventually she was just like, eventually she gave up. Maybe they were, maybe your arms got tired of lifting those heavy curtains off. I'm I'm but a specter. I can't be doing this every day. And as far as we know, you know, she's the only ghost that anyone has ever, you know, talked about a, 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 an adult sized form. You know, certainly there were other deaths in the house, but, but she's really the only one that, that we know about. You said adult-sized form. Are there child-sized forms? No, no, there okay. aren't, which is kind of curious to me because, you yeah. know, children died in the house, and I would have thought that the little girl Euphemia who passed away um, might have lingered. You know, it's said a lot of times that when a, a person is so grief-stricken that that will sometimes bind a spirit to the material plane. They, they feel badly that they've caused this grief, and so it makes it harder for them to move on. I would have thought if anyone would, would linger, it would maybe have been little Euphemia, the little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, she and I share the same middle name, which is Helen. And so I feel this kinship with yeah. her, and I always thought, you know, Maybe, maybe little Euphemia would show herself to me, but sadly, no. I mean, it does sound very mischievous to be taking curtains out of a curtain rod. That could be a kid. I don't know. I mean, I, that's, I mean, that's like a big deal. That's like a big, heavy that's thing. Like a, hmm. That's just so, yeah, that was mind-blowing to me. And one yeah. of those things where I'm like, okay, I know the person that this happened to. Yeah. I know she wouldn't lie. I know this isn't just some story. So, um, yeah, that was pretty, pretty spooky. And then, of course, some of the other staff members have had, um, you know, heard noises. Our, the doors make a very distinctive, you know, sound. Um, and we lock ourselves in there when, when we're in there. And there had been several incidents where um, the director was over there. Our former director was over there working one day and, and heard the door open and heard somebody coming up the stairs. And then it stopped. So she went to look and there was nobody there. But she knew good and well, you know, what she had heard. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, different different little things like that have happened as well. I think it's always so amazing when you hear a ghost story that's happening in contemporary settings. Yes. Because I feel like so many of the ghost stories we all know and love are, are set, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. So to have this spirit, you know, still be sighted today is pretty amazing, I think. One of the recent tenants of that um, little apartment that's over there, I had spoken to her, and she told me that um, she had had a couple of experiences. And, of course, I was super excited, and I was like, oh, God, do tell, you know. (laughs) So she said she was in the apartment one night, you know, going to bed. She was in bed, and she um, knew she needed to go to sleep, but she was um, scrolling on her phone, you know, as we we do. And um, 
she said all of a sudden she heard this female voice near her say, say her name and tell her to go to sleep. And she said it wasn't frightening. She didn't feel frightened. She said she got sort of, again, a, a motherly feeling from it. And so she turned off her phone and went to sleep. Oh. And there, she had another incident where um, apparently she um, she's very sa- it was very safety conscious and she would lock her bedroom door at night. And she had to get up super early the next morning. Um, it was still dark when she got up. And she had gotten up, and before she had a chance to turn on a light, you know, she was all groggy and thinking, oh, I can't believe I have to you know, be awake before it's even light out. And um, it was real dark in her room, and she said her bedroom door swung open on its own. As if to say, good morning. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> there was another tenant that was there, I think, before her that talked about um, she was in the bathroom um, one evening taking a bath and she um, wished that she had shut the bathroom door to keep the heat in the bathroom and the door swung shut. Like no sooner had she thought that the door swung, the bathroom door just swung shut on its own. Okay. I'm not going to lie. This, this is the most thoughtful spirit I've ever. Right. Like I am floored consistency consistently by the level of kindness she shows to people. And it fascinates me too that, I mean, I haven't had a ghost experience here. I don't know what I would do if, if I did, but, um, the fact that these people don't, you know, aren't, aren't scared, Mm -hmm. I think is, is pretty telling, you know, they're like, okay, this isn't something to be afraid of. This is just some, some lingering energy. So if a visitor were to come to Liberty Hall and they were really interested in the gray lady, what would you suggest, you know, would you suggest that they would be more likely to see her upstairs and in the room where she passed away? Would they, you know, should they come in the evening or like afternoon tours? What's kind of the, what's the key? Is there a key? I know you haven't had an experience yourself. I, it just seems so random to me. You would think that she would have, uh, I don't know, limited her activities to family members, but it seems that just randomly she'll pop in and out. And it doesn't seem to necessarily occur on any kind of anniversary of her, you know, death or anything like Mm that. Um, So I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm in here a lot and I'm, I'm often in there, you know, working on my own and, um, just waiting for something to happen <laughs> and it just hasn't. So if I, if I knew I'd be having my own experience to tell you, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I get that. I'm <laughs> sorry. I put you on the spot. I just, uh, I always get curious about the patterns of spirits. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, I've, you know, read over a lot of the, um, incidents and I can't really I can't really see that there's a pattern it doesn't sound like there's one from what you've shared Mm -mm. well I really do appreciate you taking the time to share all these amazing and wonderful stories and to tell myself and the audience a little bit about Liberty Hall and the Orlando Brown House they're such special 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 places and I appreciate that they have such a wonderful history as well as one of the most benevolent spirits I've ever heard of. (laughs) So thank you so much, Julia. You're so welcome. I'm happy to do it and would be happy to have anybody come see us at Liberty Hall and maybe get a chance to glimpse the ghost Mm -hmm. herself. But if not, just at least to enjoy um, our beautiful site, we really do have a historic treasure here that I think is is, um, very underrated and a really important part of Kentucky's history that I, I wish more people could come to appreciate, and hopefully this will help to that end. I hope so, too. Can you remind me the website to visit if we want more information, as well as the kind of general tour schedule again? Yes. Uh, LibertyHall.org um, will access our site and you can find our um, portal to sign up for tours. We do tours Monday through Saturday at 1130 and 1:30. And if you can't come, you can always um, peruse our uh, website. There are a lot of family letters on there, which are fascinating. Um, some of the items in our collection that we can't put out on display. Um, you can view all kinds of different things on, on the 
website. Thank you for joining us again for another episode of Kentucky Deceased Hauntings of Frankfurt. We are so incredibly beyond grateful for the Liberty Hall staff for putting this together with a special shout out, of course, to Julia Gabbard for her wonderful storytelling and faithful research. Also, a huge, big shout out to the one and only Sarah Elliott, who is the Liberty Hall director for her willingness to let us work together on this episode of the podcast. We love getting to share resources and stories with Sarah and all of the Liberty Hall team. So thank you so much. Also, as always, thank you to the Capital City Museum staff and board for letting this podcast be possible and helping to facilitate its production and distribution. Thank you so much for your time and energy, dear listeners. And as always, please remember to share, like, and review our podcast online.